If you haven't opened up your Bibles yet, I encourage you to do so. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 9. We've got four verses to work through here, um, and we've got a little bit of a shorter time. Uh, but we're going to dive right into it. In chapter 9, so we're in the latter part of chapter 9, uh, Matthew gives us a glimpse into three interactions uh, which Jesus has with those who are actually challenging him. So up until this point, Jesus hasn't really had much opposition. The strongest opposition that he had was in the, in the uh, region of the Gerasenes, when he cast out the demons out of one man who lived there, and then those demons get put into a herd of pigs, and then that herd of pigs runs off of a cliff, and then they fall into the sea and they drown. Do you guys remember that? We talked about this a few weeks ago. Now, uh, the opposition, if you remember, is when the people of that town heard about this. And instead of them being really awed by what Jesus did, and instead of them being awed over his authority over demons, instead of celebrating that one of their own people has been freed from the grip of demonic possession and being restored to their right state of mind, instead of pleading with Jesus to stay so that they could bring more of their afflicted friends and family to meet him, what do they do? Do you remember? They plead with him to leave. And what I think this shows us is that a lot of people are okay with Jesus so long as Jesus doesn't interfere too much with their lives. When he's something that can be kept in a box and maybe interacted with when they want to. And I think this is true for us today. One of the statistics that's pretty well known is that the highest attendance of churches across our entire nation is on Christmas Eve. So that's when everyone comes out. And I think for a lot of people, this is the one time of year that Jesus is taken out of that little box in the corner and interacted with. But the problem with this is that Jesus doesn't keep to a box in the corner. His purpose is not to get us into the Christmas spirit for a few weeks out of the year. He's calling people to be completely transformed by the Holy Spirit, to follow him each and every single day, not just a part of the year. And not everyone likes this. Jesus uh, doesn't follow the expectations that the world has for him. We can't contain him in a corner. He's, he's the king of creation. So Colossians 1 says that everything was made for him and through him and in him all things hold together. That's not something you can just put on the side. In these three interactions in chapter 9, we see how people are beginning to learn this reality and they're beginning to take offense to this as well. We see with three different groups of people, first, some scribes in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 9, then some Pharisees in 9 through 13, which Matt May preached on last week, and then the disciples of John the Baptist here this morning in verses 14 through 17. And in each of these scenes, here's what I want you to look out for. I want you to see a contention from man and a condescension from Jesus. And by condescension, I mean Jesus, as God, he stoops down onto their level. He meets each person where they're at in order to explain or teach something to them. And before I show you what I mean, let's pray one more time before we jump into the first verse. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it is evidence of you condescending to us so we can understand you, God. Help us now to receive your word, Lord. Pray that you'd give us flexible, malleable hearts, Lord, that are soft and able to hear and to receive you, God. We pray that you would do the work only you can do in our hearts. And we pray that this word would bring us great joy and delight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
As you read chapter 9 from the beginning, here are the three points of contention that people have with Jesus. So the first one is in Matthew 9, verses 2 through 4. I'm going to read it now. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their hearts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? And so the scribes or the Bible teachers of Jesus' time, they contend with Jesus for giving this man of his sins. Their contention is in their hearts. They're, they're, they're kind of muttering it underneath their breaths, but Jesus loves them enough to not, to not let that slide. He knows their contention, and he condescends to their level to reveal to them that he does, in fact, have the authority to forgive sin. So that's the first contention and condescension. Here's the second contention. See if you can spot it. Chapter 9, verses 10 through 11. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the disciples saw this, they said to his, sorry, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So Matt May did a beautiful job last week showing us that this is not just an innocent question. It, it is contentious. It is directed at Jesus' disciples, but Jesus himself intercedes. And, and Jesus, again, he condescends to their level to teach them something. He shows them that, yes, sin does separate us from God, but God's heart is full of mercy. And it's out of that mercy that Jesus has actually come for those who are sinful, not to keep them at arm's length for all of eternity. And so here is the third contention, which we'll be spending the rest of our morning talking about in verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So we've had scribes, we've had Pharisees, and here we have the disciples of John the Baptist. This is a relatively wide diversity of people, at least with very different schools of thought in terms of matters of faith and practice that they all clung on to tightly, which before we even dive further into what those schools of thought are, it shows us that Jesus isn't playing any favorites here. He is an equal opportunity teacher who does not discriminate in who he condescends to, who he teaches, who he corrects. He is as patient as he is wise, which is good news for us because if nothing else, this shows us how diversely wrong we can be about God and the Bible. So people who knew their Bibles, like the scribes did, they can get things wrong sometimes. People who live very righteously, like the Pharisees, they can get things wrong sometimes. And people who ought to understand Jesus the most, John's disciples, can get it wrong sometimes as well. Yet, God meets us all where we are, teaching and correcting us through his word by his Holy Spirit. These three groups of people are wrong in ways that do make sense with each of their tribes. So the scribes, they were meticulous about God's word. They were Bible teachers after all. And so it makes sense that they'd have an issue with Jesus forgiving sins. They rightly point out in Mark 2.7 that only God can forgive sins. So who is this man that's doing this? Their contention was theological. Then you have the Pharisees who are adamant about righteous behavior. And so it makes sense that they'd have an issue with Jesus fraternizing and being chummy with a raucous crowd of blatant sinners. And here, 
John the Baptist's whole ministry is based on repentance and holiness. And so it would make sense that his disciples would take issue with Jesus and the disciples who, who are apparently not fasting, which is a discipline of repentance and holiness. So if you remember, I'm going to kind of zoom back, fasting is a religious tradition that the people of God would do to communicate their devotion to God. We see all over the Bible, where, where the Bible shows us people who abstain from food as, a, as an act of disciplined worship of God, in order to communicate to God a seriousness of their seeking of God. It's often associated with food, but the heart of fasting is taking our focus off of our temporary needs of this world in order to focus in on God. And I do call it a religious tradition intentionally because the people of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament, they regularly practice it, but it's not something that's ever commanded by God to do. God's people do it in the Bible. We're even given very helpful parameters uh, on, on how to fast. It's talked about in a way that it's implied that this is a regular part of the Christian life in one form or another, but it's never commanded. It's never commanded. Which, as a side note, uh, our brother Fetty Gobriel, he preached a great sermon on fasting at Mercy House this summer. It's, it was on August 13th called Taste and See. It's on our podcast. I highly recommend that you check that out. If you're like, what is fasting? How can I incorporate that into my daily walk with God? I highly encourage you to check that out. August 13th, Taste and See. It's on the podcast. But here's the point of contention that the disciples of John have. And it is contentious. This is not just an innocent question that they're asking. I think it may have been an innocent question if they came to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, we're so curious about fasting. Can you teach us a little bit more about how to incorporate that into our walk with God? But that's not how they ask it. Look at verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So do you see how they're asking the question there? It's not out of curiosity, it is pointed, because the, the, the practice of fasting was something that seriously pious and devoted followers of God did. The, the Jews would have traditionally fasted on the Day of Atonement once a year, and in Jesus' time, those who were the most religious of the Jews, they would fast Monday and Thursday of every single week, in addition to other occasions throughout the year. Now, we don't really have a comparable religious tradition that equates with our holiness today. I think the closest thing that, that maybe we can tie into this are church events. Church events. So in our context, religious devotion might be expressed in regularly attending all of the extra prayer meetings and all the midweek gatherings and all the church summits and all the men's events and women's events. And for most people that you interact with, it might not be a big deal that someone doesn't go to all of those things. But if there is someone that you're expecting to exemplify holiness and righteousness, so, someone who's meant to model devotion to God, and, and they aren't participating in all those spiritual extracurriculars, it might at least raise an eyebrow. And whether you say it out loud or just in your hearts, you might think, huh, I thought you'd be at that prayer and worship night, but I guess you don't go to those. That's what's happening here. Jesus is not subtle about his kingship. 
He's, he's teaching and healing and performing miracles and signs. He's being looked to as a religious spiritual leader. And this is why there's so much contention, because he's not acting like other spiritual religious leaders that all the people know. He's not staying in his own lane, but he's forgiving people of their sins, which no religious leader could do. He's not distancing himself from sinners in disgust to maintain his own sense of holiness and superiority like the other religious leaders do. He's hanging out with them. He's enjoying meals with them. He's actually befriending all of them. And here, he's not exercising basic spiritual disciplines like fasting in order to demonstrate his holiness. At the heart of their question is judgment. It's judgment. Jesus and his disciples do not look the part. They don't look like holy religious leaders. Jesus, in his not fasting, is causing John's disciples to judge Jesus and his disciples based on their appearance, which you would think that the disciples of John the Baptist, and John the Baptist is probably the one man on earth at this point who more or less fully grasps who Jesus is and what he came to do, that his disciples would get it that they would understand what's happening. But based on their question, they do not. Based on their question, they reveal that they are putting tremendous weight into the outward appearance rather than what's happening in the inward heart. And we often single out the Pharisees for having this wrong perspective, but John's disciples are no different here. They too are more concerned with appearance than the heart. We aren't much different either. We aren't. Have you ever judged someone based on their appearance? Then this is something that you can relate to. Or have you made an assumption about their faith or where they're at in their walk with God or their spiritual maturity based on what they do or what they don't do? This is something I'm guilty of. I'm prone to make judgments like this. And to be fair, Christians ought to judge. Christians ought to judge. Matthew 18, Jesus is going to say this later on. Matthew 18, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. And so we as Christians are commanded to judge, but the parameters of Christian judgment that Jesus gives us in Matthew 18 are in matters of sin done in the context of the church for the good of the brothers and sisters in Christ. This is not what the disciples of John are doing. They are not calling out Jesus for sin. Remember, fasting is not a command from God. But they've elevated a religious tradition to the level of God's command, and they judge wrongly. They disqualify Jesus and his disciples because Jesus and his disciples aren't meeting their standard of holy expectations. Talk about ironic. In our judgment of others, when that judgment is not based in God's commands, found in God's word, we reveal, just like John's disciples did, just like the Pharisees did, just like the scribes did, that despite thinking that we have this insight and that we know we're actually spiritually blind, we have no idea what we're talking about. That's the contention that's here. Jesus, you don't look holy. Your disciples aren't practicing faith like you're supposed to be practicing faith. Why? And here's the condescension. Look at the second half of, or the first half of first, uh, verse 15. It says, And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? So he answers their question with a question. Classic Jesus. 
He responds with an illustration that all of them would understand. Weddings during Jesus' time, they were significantly different than weddings today. They, they didn't go on for like a one-hour ceremony and then ha- you go off to a three-hour reception and then there's like that sparkler exit with the bride and groom. No, that's not how weddings in the first century happened. They didn't last for hours. They lasted for days. Days. Specifically, seven days. So weddings in the first century world wouldn't just be like a wedding reception. It would have been a wedding festival. It would have been literally a week-long vacation for all of the guests invited, and which, by the way, would have been the entire village that you and your spouse came from. And Jesus is saying, when we're at a wedding, when, when we're all in party vacation mode celebrating the bridegroom, that is not a time to mourn. It's not a time to mourn. There's a connection that he's making here between fasting and mourning. And he's pointing out to John's disciples what everyone already knows. You don't fast and mourn during a time of celebration. You see this in places like Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1 and verse 4. You may have even heard this at a wedding. Verse 1 says, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And then you jump to verse 4. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. And so what Jesus is pointing out is that weddings are a time to dance. It's not a time to mourn. It's an occasion to laugh. It is not an occasion to weep. It would be inappropriate to mourn and weep during a wedding. But look what he says, second part of that verse, verse 15. And Jesus said to them, can can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. So Jesus' answer to the disciples of John about why Jesus' disciples aren't fasting is that there is a time and a place for fasting, and that this is not the time and the place. So it's important to see here that Jesus doesn't do away with the religious tradition of fasting. He ends verse 15 by telling them that there will be a time and a place to fast, but this is not it. Why? Because Jesus is the bridegroom, and he's here with them. And if he's the bridegroom, then that means that his disciples ought to be in party mode. It would be inappropriate for them to fast while he's with them, just like it would be inappropriate for them to mourn at a wedding celebration. The life and the ministry of Jesus was hard. It was hard. But this gives us a pretty awesome insight into how Jesus himself viewed his own ministry. It was a celebration. It was a joyful time, like like a wedding. I remember waking up on my wedding day, and that was a unique, special day. And by the end of that day, my face and my ribs were hurting with all the smiling and laughing. My voice was hoarse from all of the yelling, like joyful, screaming. I remember my hamstrings and quads were tight after because I danced so hard. Like the next day, I was walking around like this. It was easily the most joyful, joyful day of my life. Jesus didn't enter into creation begrudgingly because he had to. He didn't grumble. He never complained. He didn't say, can I go home now? Jesus joyfully entered into the world and lived his life and served every single day like a groom on his wedding day. He delighted in it. And this is what Christmas is about. This week we're talking about joy The season of Advent is like sitting at a wedding ceremony and and you're waiting for everything to begin. 
We're all in this place of preparation and anticipation. We're waiting for that ceremony to start. We're craning our necks, looking around, trying to see, okay, are they starting to walk? Are they coming down? And I'm the annoying guy that sits backwards because I just like, I want to see as soon as everything starts going. And then the music starts and you're like, oh, is it, is it about to start? Right? The song changes and then you start seeing some of the groomsmen walk in. And then eventually you see the groom walk in, usually carrying his mom on his arm, and, and then they're sitting them down at the seat, and then he takes his place at the front, and he stands there with that goofy, awkward smile, and you know it's about to go down. Like, that's what you're waiting for. This is it. Now, I don't know how you're viewing Christmas this year. Maybe with some anxiety, it's a week away, and you haven't gotten any presents yet. Maybe that's your feeling. Maybe with some sadness. Because a lot of stuff in your life has changed over this past year. And so Christmas this year is not like it's been ever before. Maybe it's frustration or anger. Maybe you're anticipating having to interact with that person you just don't want to interact with. Maybe you're frustrated that you can't see that person that you just really want to see. These are all valid emotions. I want to acknowledge that Christmas is not a naturally positive time of year for everybody. But I do want to challenge you to see Christmas with the perspective of Jesus here. That though there are times to mourn and fast, Jesus entering into the world is a time to sing and dance. It is a time of joy. And I'm sure people at weddings had hard things going on in their lives. I, I know that I've been that person. I got dumped right before going to a wedding. I distinctly remember that. And that was hard for me. But I want to challenge you, just like those people who have been at weddings, and maybe you have been at a wedding, I've been at a wedding where it was really difficult to put in the joy. At least for a period of time, you're able to lay it down you're able to celebrate, you're able to dance, and you're able to sing, you're, you're able to eat and be merry. And as Christians, no matter where we are in this season, we ought to be able to lay down our burdens at the feet of Jesus. We ought to be able to count his presence as a blessing that does overshadow any hardship that we might be going through in this season. Psalm 1611 says this, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So the disciples aren't fasting and mourning because the presence of King Jesus is one of celebration and fullness of joy. And as long as Jesus is there, they're going to be celebrating. They're going to be full of joy. One thing we learn about fasting from Jesus' words here is that it, like every other spiritual dis uh, discipline, is Christocentric. It, it is all about Jesus. The, the disciples of John see it as a discipline that is detached from Jesus, something that stands on its own in order to produce holiness in the person who does it, as an action that's performed, that, that displays holiness as if that were the end goal. And Jesus corrects this mistake by reminding them that fasting is as valuable, is valuable as a means to an end. It is a means by which we cry out to God and say to the Lord, God, answer me in my distress. But Jesus is the end goal of it. And fasting is about Jesus, which is why, while Jesus is with them, it's not only inappropriate to fast because his, in his presence is fullness of joy, 
It's also practically unnecessary for them. He's right there. He's right next to them. You don't need to fast to get more of God. God is literally right next to the disciples. Jesus' response to the disciples of John, it goes deeper than just talking about fasting. He takes a moment to teach them a lesson about how Jesus is approaching his entire ministry. Look at verse 16. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Jesus uses a couple more illustrations that everyone would have understood. The first has to do with clothing. So if you have a tear in your shirt or your pants, um, you wouldn't just take a fresh piece of cloth and just patch it because as soon as you wash it, that patch is going to shrink. It's going to pull on all the fabric around it. It's going to make that initial tear worse. The second illustration Jesus uses is with wineskins. So wine was kept in wineskin bags. These are bags made out of leather. And the reason they stored wine like this was because wine releases carbon dioxide as it's fermenting. So, so it, what you put it into, the container needs to have some elasticity to it. So as it expands and the gases are released, it can actually stretch and grow. And so what Jesus is saying is you want to put new wine that hasn't gone through the process of fermentation into old, already stretched out wineskins because they've already been stretched out. They won't stretch anymore. So if you fill that, that new wine is going to ferment as it releases that carbon dioxide and that old pouch of wine is just going to burst. It's going to tear and all that wine is going to spill on the ground, which is why you put new wine into fresh wineskin bags. Now, what is Jesus talking about? These are two illustrations. I think we understand what they mean, but how do they relate to what Jesus is talking about? I think that Jesus is giving us two illustrations for understanding the two-way street of discipleship. Let me tell you what I mean. The broad picture that Jesus is giving the disciples of John is that he is doing something new. It is not fitting into the expectations that people have. Remember, he's not able to be kept in a box in a corner, but he's operating in ways that challenge people's definition of who God is and, and, and who Jesus is and what he's come to do and what it means to rightly follow him. And so in both of these illustrations, Jesus and his gospel are the new components. He's the piece of cloth that's patching up an old broken Israel. He's the new wine that's filling the hearts of those who place their faith in him. But Here's the more specific point that I think he's trying to make. Christians must teach with flexibility, and they must receive with flexibility. Let me say that again. Christians must teach with flexibility, but also receive with flexibility. Jesus demonstrates a great awareness of where everyone that he's teaching and discipling is at. He recognizes that some of those people have a faith in the worldview that is old, and it is tattered, and that it has rips and some tears. And like a master tailor, he's sensitive to the fact, this fact, and he adjusts his teaching so that he can be heard and he can be received. 
That's what it means for Jesus to condescend. He's lowering himself to where the scribes are at, where the Pharisees are at, where the disciples of John are at, in order to explain to them with care and sensitivity what it looks like to follow him. He didn't have to do that for any of these people, yet he does. What he's not doing is saying, hey, this is the way it is. Get on the bus or you're going to get run over by it. That's not what Jesus is saying. He never rolls his eyes. He doesn't huff and puff. He doesn't throw his hands up in frustration saying, like, why don't you just get it? He never grabs anyone by the shirt collar and shakes them. He doesn't lose his patience. Do you know how damaging that would have been if he did? And I think some of us know how damaging this is because it's been done to us. I think Jesus teaches us this because we are so often tempted to treat others People with rips and tears in their faith, their theology or their understanding of God, people who might be a little bit slower to learn, might not have it all together, we might be tempted to treat them with impatience, with frustration, with deep sighs. (sighs) We Christians must teach with flexibility, like Jesus. We must meet people where they're at. This does not mean that we compromise on the message. It does not mean that we loosen our stance on our biblical convictions. But it does mean that we are sensitive to where people around us are at, where our friends are at, where our family is at, where our neighbors are at, where that stranger that we just happened to talk to at the holiday party is at. And look, we might have the best of intentions We should want to tell people about Jesus and to talk about our faith and and be excited about what it looks like to follow him, especially during this season. But if we're not able to be flexible with how we engage with our friends and families during this Christmas break, if we can't meet them where they're at, we can make tears and rips worse. Christians must teach with flexibility. But we must also receive with flexibility as well. Like I said before, I think Jesus is giving us these illustrations to see the two-way street of discipleship. So Jesus is sensitive in how he teaches the gospel, but the gospel itself is alive. It expands. It stretches like a wine that's fermenting. As we read God's word, as, as we hear it being taught, as we learn more about the gospel, it will stretch us. It will push on us in ways that might feel uncomfortable. And if we are inflexible, if we're not willing to be transformed and stretched by it, if we continue to hold on to what is old, we will not get what is new. That's what Jesus' message is for these disciples and for us. There are a lot of things that the religious people around Jesus needed to let go of. A lot of religious traditions, a lot of commonly held beliefs and practices, And what Jesus has been doing for the majority of his teaching ministry so far has been deconstructing their religious traditions and practices. But Jesus' deconstruction is not like the majority of deconstruction that we see today that removes bad teaching and then just replaces it with doubt and skepticism. Jesus deconstructs bad teaching and replaces it with right teaching. He challenges the lies, but he introduces truth in its place. And so, brothers and sisters, are we able to be flexible in our receiving of teaching? Are we able and willing to be stretched and to be challenged? This isn't just in matters of teaching and learning, but are we willing to be flexible 
and God's calling on our lives. This is something that I see a lot. I think we can often get stuck in, well, these are my gifts. This is what I'm called to do. This is kind of my vision for my life. If you're asking me to do something that's outside of that, something that makes me uncomfortable, no thanks. I've kind of got my own thing going on here. But biblically, there's plenty of people who were stretched beyond, well beyond what was comfortable for them. Do you think Peter, who was a fisherman by trade, unlearned, often putting his foot in his mouth, was comfortable preaching and pastoring the early church? I don't think so. Do you think Matthew, the writer of this gospel, this despised tax collector, was comfortable with the task of writing scripture? Do you think Paul, who was once a violent persecutor of the church, was comfortable going and planting churches among those whom he oppressed? No. Those are all really uncomfortable things. So brothers and sisters, don't shrink when you are asked to do things that require faith. It might be God calling you to do something in order to stretch you. And that might introduce pressure into your life that will put you outside of what is comfortable for you. And my appeal to you is be flexible. Be willing to be transformed. And just like grape juice that ferments and expands inside of a wineskin to become delicious, valuable wine, you are being matured into something better than what you were before. If you're not a Christian, then you don't have this spiritual flexibility. If we're not regenerated by the Spirit, we're the old stretched out bags that will burst. See, as sensitive and as flexible as Jesus is in his teaching to meet people where they're at, at the end of the day, those same people will need to be made new in order to really receive what he's teaching. There needs to be a change in the hearer of the gospel. There needs to be a transformation in that disciple of Jesus to even receive from Jesus. And so the natural question that should have been asked by the disciples of John is, how do we become new wineskins? Kind of like Nicodemus when Jesus says, you must be born again, and Nicodemus says, how can that be so? And Jesus goes into that lesson, but they don't do that here. The reason we need to ask that, because it, it's not a matter of just being more flexible or willing yourself to have more spiritual elasticity. That's not the point of the sermon. Jesus' illustration is helpful, but it is impossible. And this illustration is bigger than just addressing fasting. I hope that's what you're seeing. Up until this point, Jesus is teaching them so much new content. The entire Sermon on the Mount is like a fire hose of gospel teaching. And the things that the scribes and the Pharisees and the disciples of John are struggling with are the tiniest little fraction of what they would need to receive in order to be faithful followers of Jesus. And what Jesus is teaching is you need to be made new in order to receive what I'm giving you. There's only so much that natural minds and hearts can take before we tear we need to be made new. So Jesus kind of leaves them in a cliffhanger right here, but we know where he's going. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When we trust in Jesus, when we follow him, when we put our faith in his work, we are made completely new. And this is done as a once and for all moment. But Paul also talks about this in Titus 3 as the Spirit actively renewing us and actively regenerating us. And there are parts of our old self that we need to be grown out of. And some of 
this is old religious tradition that we need to outgrow, but some of this is old sinful tradition that we need to outgrow. But either way, Jesus loves us enough, even if we have contention with him, even if we read or hear something in his word that irks us, even when he invites us to follow him in a way that just stiffens our hearts a little bit, Jesus does condescend to us. He comes down to our level. He meets us where we're at with patience and with humility. And so let's respond to him with a willingness to be transformed and a willingness to grow and mature. When Jesus said at the end of verse 15, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast, he undoubtedly had his mind on the cross. Before I transition into communion, I do want to say that I've seen kind of a concerning tradition growing at Mercy House, that as soon as we start reading 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and instituting communion, this is when people start packing up, and a lot of people will get up and go to the bathroom, which I understand, you got to go to the bathroom, but I do exhort you to just wait a little bit and go after or go at any time during the sermon, because communion is such a sacred, special, critical moment for us on a Sunday. And in many ways, it is the climax of our entire time in God's word together. It wraps up our time with the one thing that Jesus commands us to remember and proclaim each time we gather and break bread together. So I urge you to, out of respect and reverence for Jesus and his death, to not unplug as soon as we transition to communion, but let's lean in altogether. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. The bridegroom was taken away, and the disciples did mourn and fast. We today find ourselves in a strange place. We fast because Jesus has gone away, but we also celebrate out of what he was able to accomplish on the cross. Communion is complex, but it's important for us to hold these things in tension. Communion is a reminder of our ultimate contention with God in our sin, but also Jesus' ultimate condescension, not only meeting us where we're at to teach us and to guide us, but to die for us. As we take communion this morning, let us mourn his death, but also let us celebrate with joy the victory over death with song and with worship. Let's pray. Father, your word is like purified gold. It is valuable beyond our ability to measure. God, your wisdom pours forth through it. You have revealed yourself in it. God, we thank you that your word stands even if everything else falls. God, thank you that we have a solid foundation in your word. And we thank you that you're a God who meets us where we're at to teach us and to lead us and to love us. And so I pray that that would happen this morning, God, that each person in this room would experience the personal condescension of you through your word, God. I pray that they would see that you have knelt down to speak directly to them, God. Father, we confess that there's so much in your word that it it can be overwhelming, Lord. There's so much to learn. 
We thank you in you. We have a perfect teacher, God. Help us to celebrate, Lord. Help us to celebrate in your presence, God. Help us to celebrate in your arrival, your coming on Christmas, Lord. And I pray that this would be a season um, where we can genuinely connect with your word and with you, God. So, Lord, I, I thank you for this time. I thank you for my brothers and sisters here. Thank you that we get to read your word and worship you together. And pray that this time of communion would be just that, Lord, a time where we're able to commune with you and with one another. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.